Hi, my name is Melissa, and the Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commandments that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Kay. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Be glad in the Lord always. Again, I say, be glad. Let your gentleness show in your treatment of all people. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. Rather, bring up all your requests to God in your prayers and petitions, along with giving thanks. Then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. From now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent, and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things, all that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. Practice these things, whatever you learned, received, heard, or saw in us. The God of peace be with you. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Brett. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against the house. It didn't fall because it was firmly set on bedrock. But everybody who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. It fell and was completely destroyed. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your generosity toward us. Jesus, we thank you for your redemption and your salvation, the giving of your life. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with us even here and now. And so we ask that as we open up the scriptures this morning, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to see you, to hear you, to know you, to trust in you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning. Uh, if you're a sports fan, there are certain iconic moments that you'll never forget, not only on the court or on the field, but certain even, believe it or not, iconic press conference moments. Moments where an athlete said something in a post-game or midweek press conference that you're like, oh man, that will go down in sports history. If you're a basketball fan, particularly if you're an NBA fan, you'll never forget Allen Iverson talking about practice. You see, in 2002, Allen Iverson is the franchise player for the Philadelphia 76ers, and he wasn't 
practicing. And he insisted it was because he was hurt. He went on in a very short amount of time to say the word practice 10 times. I just want to read you some of the more famous parts of his rants. If I can't practice, I can't practice. If I'm hurt, I'm hurt. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's easy to sum it up when we just talk about practice. And then here's the the famous quote. We're sitting here, I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not the game that I go out there and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game, we're talking about practice. I mean, how silly is that? We're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that and I'm not shoving it aside, you know, like it don't mean anything. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we're here talking about practice. What are we talking about? Practice? We're talking about practice? (laughs) And thus ends the reading of Alan Iverson. (laughs) Well, this morning we're talking about practice. As Paul wraps up his letter to the Philippians, he says, practice these things. And maybe you and your inner Allen Iverson are wondering why we're talking about practice. After all, if the Christian life is a promise, why do we need to practice? If the Christian life, if the gospel is an announcement, why does it require our participation? If the gospel is good news and it's an announcement, then what's my involvement here? If the gospel, if grace is really a gift, why should it require anything of us? And so we have these dichotomies, these two ways of thinking in our minds that we say either grace is a gift or it requires something or it costs something of us. And we say either the gospel is a good news announcement or it's something that I've got to participate in. Either the Christian life is a promise, or it requires practice. But Paul knows better than to split those two things up. Paul knows there are times in our life when actually those two things that we separate as concepts actually overlap. Say, for example, any of you in the room who are college students, and let's say it was your dream to go and study in the south of France. Let's just say you're bourgeois like that. (laughs) And let's just say after church today, someone came up to you and said, I've got great news for you. Your spring semester is going to be a semester abroad in the south of France. You're like, what? What do I have to do for that? Like, no, it's paid for. I've made all the arrangements. You'll actually get a full credit for the semester. It's all taken care of. You're set. Here's your plane ticket, all the stuff, the details. You'll fly right after the first of the year. You're going to be incredibly excited. And perhaps you might be interested in learning French. Because there are some times that a gift will require you to practice. Oh, let's say you're in here this morning and you're a mountain climber. You're a person who likes to take on challenges. And I know there's at least one of you in here that's done this, climbed Mount Rainier. And let's say that someone came to you after this and said, look, I've got a gift for you. I've prepared the whole thing. There's going to be a guide. There's going to be a trip. And you're going to go to the Northwest and you're going you're to hike and then climb a Mount Rainier. And you're like, but that's incredible. You, how would you spend the next few months? probably practicing your climbing. 
probably going over to City Rock or wherever it is that you people do these things. <laughs> and you would train. If you're a teenager in the room, like my two over there, yearning for independence one day, what should you do to prepare yourself for that gift? As my girls do, <laughs> practice the habits of running your own schedule. Practice the habits of setting your alarm and determining your deadlines. Why? Because one day you'll be given the gift of freedom and you better know what to do with it. And Paul is saying to these Christians in Philippi, the announcement is that Jesus is king and not just any old king. He's the saving king. He's the humble king. Philippians 2 gives us the stunning portrait of a king unlike any other king in the ancient world. And then Paul says, how do we respond to this? You need to practice. Verse 9 of Philippians 4, practice these things. Whatever you learned, received, heard, or saw in us, the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. And so this morning, I want to jump all the way back up to the beginning of this chapter. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along, paper Bible or clicking Bible, whichever one you want to use. And we're going to start all the way back up to the, the, the little part of the ending part of verse one. And we're going to identify five things that Paul says to practice. Philippians 4 verse 1b to, to 3 says, loved ones, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. In fact, in the Greek it says, I plead, and he says that word twice. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to come to an agreement in the Lord. Yes, and I'm also asking you, loyal friend, we're not totally sure who this loyal friend is, to help these women who have struggled together with me in the ministry of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the scroll of life. Now, sometimes this text has been either ignored or when it has been preached, it's been preached as if these are just a couple of silly women who were arguing about the flowers and the coffee. Uh, this is most certainly not what is going on. Paul often will address conflict in the churches that he's writing to. But this is the only time that Paul names names. And it's not because these women are so bad, but because these women are so important. I'm going to say that again. It's not because these women are so bad, but because they're so important. They're so critical to the mission. You see, Paul says to them, these are, people who have, these are women who have struggled with me in the ministry of the gospel, with me. Not these are the women who set up the flowers and the coffee so I could have the pulpit. These are women who have co-labored with me. Paul's attitude towards women is not to tell them to go home, but to tell them, but to identify them as co-laborers in the gospel. His attitude, to, I'll say it again, in case you missed your cue. <laughs> Paul's attitude towards these women who wanted to co-labor with him was not to tell them to go home. But to say to them, the church needs you. And the church needs you so badly that I'm pleading with you to come to an agreement. I'm pleading with you to work this out because if you don't work it out, it's going to cause a major rift in the church. That's how influential you are. This is not a sideshow. This is a, a disagreement among leaders. And then he says, come to an agreement, be of the same mind is what that phrase means. 
It's the, it's the similar phrase that he used in chapter 2 where he says to all the Philippians, I want you to be of the same mind, be in one accord. And now Paul kind of takes that same injunction and he puts it in with laser focus and he says, I'm pleading with you, Yodia, and I'm pleading with you, Sinzika, come to be of the same mind. The first thing Paul wants us to practice is reconciliation. Practice Reconciliation. Now, I'm just going to tell you that each of these five things ought to be in their own right, their own sermons. So there's no way I'm going to do any of these themes justice, but we're just going to name them at the very least today. True reconciliation, when you read the New Testament, requires, it requires remorse on the part of the offender. Not only does it require remorse, but it actually requires repentance It requires a turning away. That word for repentance in the New Testament means to turn around. To not just say, oh, I feel so bad about that, but okay, hope hope, uh, you're okay. But to stop and turn around, to change your direction. True reconciliation not only requires remorse and repentance, but also requires restitution. How else does Zacchaeus, a tax collector in the Gospels, intend to practice reconciliation? He goes and pays back all the stuff that he's extorted. This is what reconciliation looks like. Now listen, I'm just gonna say this and put this out there. Many of us hear Jesus' words on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And we think in our minds that that is what forgiveness is. But if you listen closely to those words, Jesus is not saying, I forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is praying for them, which is exactly what he told us to do. You can pray for your enemies without there actually being reconciliation because they haven't been remorseful, repentant, or offered restitution. You can offer mercy to your enemies and still, and it still not really be true reconciliation because there hasn't been remorse, repentance, and restitution. But see, the only way for reconciliation to happen is when the victim and the victimizer, the offended and the offender can really look one another in the eye and say, and the offender can say, remorse, repentance, restitution. That's how reconciliation happens. And if you're in a situation where you're not in control over that, you are free to to pray for them. The way Jesus prayed for them. Father, forgive them. Jesus prayed. You are free to offer mercy. You are free to bless those who curse you. But I want to release you today from the impossible burden of telling yourself that you somehow need to be reconciled with a person who never repented to you. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. That's, in, in fact, not even what the New Testament says. For there to be, this is why Paul says, I plead with you, Yodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche. Notice Paul doesn't say, come on, one of you just decide to get over it. One of you decide to be the bigger person. He doesn't say that. He says to both of you, because true reconciliation actually requires that both parties come together. And as far as we can, we should try to practice that. I'm going to let you sit with that with the Lord today. Verse 4, then Paul says, be glad in the Lord always. Again, I say, be glad. The second thing Paul invites the Philippians to practice is to practice joy, to practice rejoicing. Now, you remember a couple weeks ago, the illustration with the juice box and the straw? Do you remember that? That this juice box is the source and the straw is just what it came through When Paul says rejoice in the Lord, he's not telling us to put a happy face on life. He's saying make sure you stay connected to the source of joy. 
Here's Paul writing from prison. He's not oblivious to our pain in life. You know, sometimes I think we imagine that the Bible was written by upper middle class suburban Christians who kind of, you know, like their biggest trial was that the Starbucks drive through was a bit long this morning. <laughs> Instead of remembering that these were people who were beaten, that Paul was not being held in a cushy white collar jail, but he had scars on his back dependent on friends to bring him food and drink. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul's writing these words, saying to them, look, joy requires cultivation. It's not going to spring up one day and you wake up out of bed and you're like, man, I just, I just feel joy. So sociologists have told us there's a difference between a mood and an emotion. A mood doesn't really have an object that it's aimed at. So now don't practice this with your spouse. I don't recommend this. But if you find someone in a bad mood, but they don't really know what they're mad about, that's a mood, not an emotion. Because an emotion always has an object. It's aimed at something. I am upset about this. And so when Paul says, practice joy, he's telling them to remind your soul of something that is truer than what you see all around you. He's asking you to remind yourself about something that is truer than your circumstances. And you can imagine Paul in prison saying, I know what is truer than my current state in prison. I know that Jesus will come again in glory. And in fact, he says it in Philippians, my salvation is coming. Pastor Jason preached a brilliant sermon last week about the hope that awaits Christians. Sometimes what we have to remind our soul about in order to practice joy is not empty promises about how things are going to get better in this world. I, we don't, we're not assured of that. In fact, Jesus' final words in John's gospel, some of his final words were, in this world you will have trouble. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Something else is coming. Sometimes practicing joy may feel like gardening in Colorado. It's not for the faint of hearts. And you're trying to like plant these seeds and you're trying to till the soil. But sometimes our heart is like that. Our heart can feel like that clay that joy will not take root in our soul. And Paul, that's why he says, be glad in the Lord always. Not just when things are going good. Not just when you feel like it. Not just when your moods happen to line up. Give your soul an object to aim at. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. This is not being unwilling to talk about sad emotions. We've already covered this a few weeks ago. Some of you grew up in homes where you could never say negative emotions. You, you can say negative emotions. This is not what Paul means. But Paul says what you need to do is you need to practice a deeper joy that anchors you so that you're not tossed around. Then in verse 5, he says, let your gentleness show in your treatment of all people. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness show in your treatment of all people. The Lord is near. Now, to us, those, that seems like a non sequitur. Like, what do those statements have to do with one another? Like, let your gentleness show to all people and the Lord is near. What? This word gentleness, in some translations, it puts it as reasonableness. The idea is sort of fair treatment, kind treatment, gentleness toward, and he's aiming this at the outsiders. He says, all people. 
Here Paul is telling the Philippians a word about how to interact with the world out there. And you imagine these Christians, again, on the margins of society, scoffed at all kinds of false rumors being spread about Christians and what's really going on in their gatherings. And Paul says, you don't have to get even with them now. And so the third thing he says is practice gentleness. But why? Because Christians just, you know, we're just, you know, we're just so sweet. We're sugary. We like milk toast. I don't even know what that is. We're just, you know, so sentimental and sappy. No, he says, practice gentleness. The Lord is near. Now notice the word he uses here is Lord. The same word that was used as a title for Caesar. Could it be that Paul wants him to know that the ultimate ruler of the world is on his way? The Lord is on his way. And so Paul can say, you can be gentle with the world around you because the judge is coming. The king is on his way. Sometimes as a a parent with our younger two kids, I'll hear, you know, parents, you know this. You know when a fight is building up. And you just know. It's like past bedtime, you've kept them out. They've had some kind of sugary something or other like Halloween candy, let's just say. And you just know this is not going to end well. So you're trying to head it off at the pass. You're like, why don't you go to your room? And why don't you go to your room? I'm like, no, no, we're having fun. <laughs> and they're like wrestling and playing with each other. And you just know those la- that laughter is going to turn to tears. Like in three, two, one. <laughs> and you're like, oh, God. I knew. I knew I, and I find myself, this is bad parenting. Don't do this. But. I, I, uh, I frequently will say, I knew it, I knew it. And Holly, the ever wise parent in our, you know, she'll say, babe, is that helpful right now? You know, like, is that helpful right now? <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, but I knew that was coming. That was, that's why. And she's like, so that doesn't help right now. But what Paul is trying to say is, look, don't get into this fight because the Lord is on his way. Let him take care of you. Very often the debrief with the kids after the fight is, what happened? Well, he took my whatever. He took my snicker bar. And so what did you do? Well, I smacked him. You know, you're like, well, you you could have come to me and I would have made sure. You're like, yeah, I could have, but I was right there. So I hit him. And and this is Jane, our youngest, who can stand her own ground, you know. (laughs) And we have to say to our kids, you know, When you are the wronged party, but then you take revenge and then you wrong the other, now you're both in the wrong. Like, this is not okay. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, look, you can practice gentleness, not because Jesus doesn't care about justice, but because Jesus is just and because Jesus is coming, you don't have to take this into your hands. That's the power of this. The theologian Miroslav Volf, who's at Yale, he grew up in Eastern Europe and he talked, he saw civil war and bloody violence. And Wolf wrote about the kind of sanitized Western version of nonviolence that thinks that Christians ought to be nonviolent just because we don't like that stuff, it's icky. Or because we sort of ignore justice. 
And Wolf says, you discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In other words, Wolf says, in some circles of Western theology, we hear, don't judge because God is so sweet and sugary. And God doesn't judge either. God doesn't see injustice. No, he says that kind of thesis will die. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. And Wolf says it's because Revelation gives us a vision to a church that's being persecuted by Rome, to a church that's witnessing martyrs being slaughtered, to a church that is being pushed on the margins. What they need to know is that he will come riding on a horse and only Jesus is just and true to make it right. And that not only, no, no, no. Don't take that to be like, yeah, go get him. As if Jesus is some sort of spiritual Rambo. <laughs> but what the writers of the New Testament want us to say is turn over the handling of justice to Jesus. And let the only one who is just and true, merciful and righteous, he's both. So you, you, you might say, well, I don't, I don't know how to sort this out because on the other hand, they are a good person. They didn't really mean to... You don't have to sort this out. In fact, let's stretch this just one layer further. Some Christians want to be experts in knowing who's going to go to hell and who's not. I have good news for you. You don't have that job. You don't have that job. Billy Graham said it decades ago. He says, God is the judge and we'll let the Holy Spirit do the work and we'll pray for people around us. But you don't have to sit on the throne and decide, I'll tell you who's going to hell. You don't have to know that. Question before all of us is, can you trust the only judge who is just and true, merciful and righteous? That's how you practice gentleness. You practice gentleness because you know Jesus is near. Amen? Two more. Verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. Rather, bring up all of your requests to God in your prayers and petitions along with giving thanks. And then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. When Paul's talking about anxiety here, he's not referring to the kinds that we might refer to as being related to PTSD or the kinds that maybe would be diagnosed as a general anxiety disorder. He's not talking about things that have clinical dimensions to this. I think it's important to say that because some of you have heard the church answers so long that you have felt guilty or shame for pursuing healthy or wholeness through counseling and therapists and proper treatment of that, of mental health. This verse is not meant to sweep mental health under the, under the rug. Hear me say that. This is not what Paul is saying. Oh, come on, just pray more. If you're struggling with a kind of anxiety that you need to see a counselor or a therapist, please do that. And there's medication that can help, and there's professionals that can guide you in that. This verse is not a cure-all for any sort of ailments. We believe that healing comes to us in a variety of ways. Amen? We've got many great counselors in the room today. We've got many great therapists in the room today. We believe and support in their work. That's not what this verse is meant to be a panacea to, okay? What Paul is saying is there are other moments where there's an angst that rises up in you 
because you think that you're in charge of the world. And so Paul says that kind of angst needs to be turned over to prayer. That kind of angst. When you find yourself worried about your life and the future and your job and if you're going to get married or what's going to happen next or if you'll have kids and, and there's all of this worry and angst, Paul says, turn that over into prayer. Turn that over into prayer. And so the fourth thing that Paul says to practice is prayer. Practice prayer. Then the peace of God, which exceeds all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. When? When will the peace of God go? When you are able to present everything in prayer before the Lord. Bring all of your requests to God in your prayers and petitions. Earlier this summer, or, or in the summer, our dear friend Pete Gregg from the UK came and spoke to us in a very simple way from his new book, How to Pray. And Pete outlines a very simple acronym there with P-R-A-Y. Pause, rejoice. That's pretty much Philippians 4 so far. Ask and then yield, surrender to the Lord. Many of us either only pray when we need some kind of answer, like God is the, you know, the ATM machine. Come on, God, I need stuff. Or we don't really pray at all. We kind of think that prayer is for the spiritual giants. Paul wants the Philippians to know prayer is the language of this new family of God. This is, this is, we're, we're supposed to bring all of our requests to him, all of them. And in fact, even the stuff that unsettles you, as you have fears or anxieties or worries or things that percolate up to the surface, let that be an insight, a window into what's going on beneath the surface and then say, God, I think what I'm really asking for here is not actually that you'll help the interview to go well, but I think what I'm asking for is that you will let me know that my future is in your hands. Bring all of your requests before God, not just the surface stuff or what counselors call presenting issues, but Lord, let me go deeper so that I'm able to present every part of who I am to God. The final piece here, verse 8, from now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent, if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, and all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. He says, some of your translations say, think on these things. The Greek is a little stronger than that. It's much more like the word focus. Focus on these things. In other words, put your just train your mind, practice your heart to keep coming back to these things. Why? Because Paul knows that in daily life we so easily wander off to, oh, but look at that, that's just awful, isn't it? Oh, that's just so discouraging. Oh, that's just terrible. And Paul's like, yeah, that's the world we live in. But come on, come back over here, over here, right here, right here. Eyes on me, eyes on Jesus, eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. If anything is excellent, admirable, true, holy, just, pure, lovely, Maybe this last one is actually part of the key to some of the others we've already discussed. Who are we fixing our eyes on? What is it you notice? Psychologists tell us that emotions are kind of like modes of perception. They tell us what we're seeing in the world. So if you were hoping to get out today and go on a little stroll around the neighborhood and the weather is nice, you're going to feel happy. And your happiness is connected 
to the way that you're perceiving the weather. You're perceiving this weather is good because you had a concern, you had an interest in taking a walk. It's like, oh, this is great. But if you were hoping for a snow day tomorrow, still could happen. <laughs> you're looking outside and you're thinking, come on, bring in the front. Like, I want school to be canceled. I want work. I don't want to go teach today, you know, tomorrow. Any of you teachers in the house, you know, you're going to look at the blue skies around 4.30 and, th and think, ah! <laughs> and your emotions will tell you what your perception is. Your perception is this is bad news because you have a totally different interest in the weather. Does that make sense? So a little bit technical about emotions and all that stuff. Just thanks for hanging with me. But here's a very simple illustration. Here's a picture uh, coming on the screen here. Do you see a young woman oh, and, or, or an older woman with a rather large, prominent chin and nose? How many of you see the old woman with the nose and chin? How many of you see the young woman with her face turned to the side and that's her ear and that's her necklace? Okay. How many of you see both? How many of you have no clue what to look for? You're like, I don't know, what is this? It looks like chocolate chip cookies. You know, you're just hungry. All right. This is an exercise on perception. Let's put the next picture on. How many of you see a duck? How many of you see a bunny? Oh. How many of you see both? Yeah, there you go. You can look at the same thing and perceive it differently. This is, I think, what Paul's saying. You don't have to have your circumstances change for your heart to be different. What you got to do is you got to become practiced at focusing on the right things. I'll give you a perfect example of this. In the book of Acts, the disciples were beaten and then released from prison. And it says they rejoiced. Coming out of prison, they rejoiced. Why? Because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. And you're like, I, I, just, I just want to know if you're being honest about the pain and the scars and stuff. And that it hurts not so much here or here, but like right here. And they're like, they're like, yeah, no, 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 yes, yes, we know it hurts, and this is awful. But you know what else? You know who else suffered? You know who died like a criminal? You know who was crucified like a humiliated slave? Jesus. And if we are beaten, we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. I think Paul heard those stories of the ones who came to faith before him and thought, okay, okay, come on, Philippians. I don't know how long I've got left in my race. I don't know how long I've got left in my assignment here on earth. But if my, if my course is wrapping up, then I want to pass this on to you just as maybe Peter and John passed it on to me. I want to pass it on to you and let you know that this Christian life is only possible not because everything goes the way you hope it does, but because you've learned how to focus your eyes on the right things. Fix your heart on Jesus. Amen. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We'll get a real concrete way to practice this over the next 12 months. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are good, or whatsoever things fit my tribal talking points. For those of you still trying to catch on to what 12-month thing am I talking about. I'm talking about the presidential election next year. 
<sighs> I'm talking about how ugly it might get out there. I'm talking about how arguments and rhetoric might tempt you and draw you into the religion of online outrage where attendance is measured in the number of posts you make. Paul maybe would say to us, listen church, whatever is true and holy and just and pure and lovely and worthy of praise, focus on those things. Maybe, radical as this might be, could you maybe find the good in a viewpoint you disagree with? <gasps> it wasn't that long ago that we knew how to do that. Find something praiseworthy about an opponent's viewpoint. Say, so, look, this is not what I would do. I still disagree with that. But I can see what they're trying to get at. I know, that's radical. You're already like, oh, Glenn, how cute and naive. <laughs> Don't hear it from me. Hear it from Paul, who's writing from a prison of the Roman Empire, telling Christians who are pushed and beaten and saying to them, Whatever things are pure and just and good, think on these things. Fix your heart to that. What is going to feed your heart and soul and mind this year? As we come to a close here, these practices finally are, are, are not really like a list. They're much more like a tapestry. One thread will touch another thread, and they'll touch a third thread. And actually, this all kind of weaves Together, the more we pray, the more able we are to cultivate joy and gentleness. And the more we focus, the better we're able to pray. And that maybe will lead to reconciliation in some relationships. And these threads are a tapestry, not a disconnected list. But here's the truth, friends. There is one who holds all these threads together. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say to us, here's a bunch of threads, good luck. Good luck weaving them. Hope you're good at this. Remember what Paul says, verse 9. He says, practice these things, whatever you learned and received, heard, or saw in us. And his final parting phrase, the God of peace will be with you. This is Paul's way of saying, you're not on your own. You're not left to kind of figure this out and struggle along and kind of, well, I hope I figure this out. Paul said, the God of peace. You know what peace means? Peace means a kind of unity and wholeness. Peace in the scriptures doesn't mean the absence of conflict. Peace means a sense of harmony and concord and well-being, a sense of being held together. And what Paul wants these Christians to know is, look, ultimately the only thing that will help you practice these things is there's a God who holds it all together. There's a God who pulls all the threads together. And it might feel like you're sitting here on this Sunday morning with a whole lot of loose threads and a whole lot of loose ends, unsure of how I fit this together and hold it all. And we come to church every week to say, God, we want to practice these things, but would you take our hands, take our lives, and show us how to weave this together. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? With me this morning? So we come to the Lord's table. We're coming to freely confess our sins and freely admit that we need the Lord's help. We haven't outgrown our need for grace and we come saying, you be the God of peace. You be the one that holds 
these practices together. And even when we fail and even when we fall, as we will, your forgiveness is here. Your strength is here. Your joy is here.